Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, and hard to believe I was on the air with you guys last about three days ago. It does seem like a long time in some ways, but hey, for many of you, it does give you all the time to get caught up, on, most notably on this uh, series that we've been uh, doing uh, for about close to now uh, two weeks. We're not anywhere close to being done yet, but that's uh, not a bad thing either. And I know many of you all are learning a great deal about um, about what the state of Virginia was uh, going through in 1781. Whether you are whether you hail from uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia or not, uh, hopefully you are learning more about America's largest of the 13 uh, states in 1781. After all, Virginia is the not only just so much the largest of the of the states. But she has the most to gain and the most to lose, and as of right now in 1781, things aren't looking good in Virginia. Virginia, it seems, might have more to lose than more to gain, but, you know, heroes do come out of nowhere. Is it fair to say that Jack Jewett is going to be one of those heroes? Yes. And as a matter of fact, folks, I'm not going to give it all, give it completely away, but in this next podcast segment, we are going to be learning more about Jack Jewett's uh, famous ride. So let's fasten our seatbelts because we have a lot to cover and we've got to um, make sure that we come away with, um, with uh, getting um, a great deal of uh, information obtained so that we know where we're going to be going, not only in the present, but for upcoming uh, podcast episodes on this um, book that we're doing, uh, written by Judy Bloodgood Bander, Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, and the Ride to Save Virginia and the American Revolution. So our first uh, leadoff question, matter of fact, I probably should say where we, um, where we left off last was that um, Marquis de Lafayette was the one on the Patriot side who he was the one that realized that Virginia had now become the primary epicenter of the Revolutionary War, given what Colonel John, what Colonel John Simcoe on the British side had done at Point of Fork in uh, what is now uh, present day uh, Goochland County, or in the southern end of Goochland County, had done. He basically destroyed Patriot provisions, um, largely in part because there wasn't enough intelligence obtained ahead of time uh, to where. Um, we could have sent a, a large detachment of forces that could have um, intercepted, um, basically intercepted the enemy from uh, making its way into um, territory where um, provisions were uh, stored. So we obviously don't have the uh, con- we don't have we don't have the uh, the strength. We don't seem to have um, a whole lot of um, leadership. Not that leadership doesn't care, but the bottom line is is that even leadership at the highest of levels is on the run, including the Virginia General Assembly. So our first leadoff question will be the following. How many uh, Loyalist soldiers were under Colonel Banastray Tarleton's command for the westward mission to Charlottesville, which began June the 3rd, 1781? I'll give you a, a number range. It's, it would be between 150 and uh, 200. The answer is 180. You know, that seems like a small number to us, but 180, that's a pretty big number. 
and it, and it might be fair to say that these um, the this uh, force of 180 soldiers to me they would sound like seasoned veterans, and I'll tell you uh, why here momentarily. Well, let me ask you this: Do did all of the uh, soldiers under Colonel Banastre Tarleton's uh, command, being 180, were they uh, from England or from America? I know many of you all would think, oh, they must come from uh, England, given that uh, the Americans are fighting the British in this war. Well, the answer, folks, is no, that not all of the uh, British soldiers who were in their red coat attire came from England. As a matter of fact, there were many in America who obviously were loyalists and were willing to um, fight and uh, regardless of where they lived in America, they were willing to fight for the crown. And it meant uh, not just so much being a traitor to those of the opposition being the patriots, but it also meant um, donning a British uh, red coat uh, uniform. So the answer is that all of these uh, loyalist soldiers under Tarleton's command were uh, from America. And... Uh, these soldiers uh, came from the following states of uh, New Jersey and New York. And believe it or not, folks, New Jersey, um, even before 1776, had been um, a haven for m many uh, loyalists. Even New York City had its fair share of, uh, of a strong loyalist uh, population. Philadelphia did as well. Um, so in our major cities, there were... Uh, con uh, a heavy or a decent-sized concentration of loyalists, and most notably Boston had a decent-sized population of loyalists also. But, uh, yes, in cities like New York City and Philadelphia, as I just mentioned a moment ago, those cities, along with the states of New York and New Jersey, were, were where these 180 loyalist soldiers under Tarleton's command um, came from. But these are uh, soldiers that are really just not called soldiers. They have another name. Well, what other name could there be uh, besides soldiers? Well, can't soldiers do more than just uh, carry a musket or a rifle on their shoulder um, and, and, you know, march from point A to point B? I mean, is it fair to say that soldiers can do more than just fire out on an open battlefield? Oh, absolutely. Colonel Banastre Tarleton's 180 Loyalist soldiers were also known as dragoons. You heard what I said, dragoons, right? Not dragons, but dragoons. Dragoon is spelled D-R-A-G-O-O-N. And of course, for more than one dragoon, we add an S at the end. So, how did they get the term uh, dragoons? Well, dragoons... Uh, the term itself has multiple meanings, but the most uh, common uh, term for it has to do with riders who uh, rode on horseback, a.k.a. rode on a horse. And dragoons uh, rode on horses, not just for show, folks. This wasn't the Kentucky Derby or, um, or a fox and hound event. The dragoons are on horseback for faster mobility purposes. But besides being confined to, um, but besides being confined to uh, riding on a horse from point A to point B, the dragoons were also trained to fight on the ground. So how can um, one, you know, ride their horse and then get off their horse and get on ground and start, you know, fighting? 
Well, the ironic thing is that you don't always have to get off your horse just to fight the enemy. Matter of fact, many uh, cavalrymen were known to attack the opposition with their sword on with their swords on horseback, and they were also um, able to use um, to use a gun. And of course, I'm not talking a, a rifle or a musket because those are uh, larger um, those are larger weapons. But uh, cavalrymen and even uh, dragoons, given that dragoons could do um, multiple tasks. Dragoons uh, were able to use um, smaller uh, weaponry to attack an opponent. So, what other, so basically, uh, what what do you think a dragoon could do? Well, well, they were trained to fight on the ground as well, but they performed uh, multiple mil military functions in times of combat or fighting on horseback. The dragoons could use both swords. Think about that. Remember what I said? They could take a sword off. They could, you know, go head-to-toe uh, -to -toe combat with someone who's not on the horse. And Banastray Tarleton was known for doing that, and as well as many of his other uh, cavalrymen and uh, skirmishes even in the backcountry in the Carolinas. But uh, the dragoons, uh, the firearms that dragoons would have used were in the form of pistols. Think about it, folks. Pistols are smaller. Um, they're smaller weapons. It's easier for a man on his horse to reload his pistol and still be able to fire a shot off. Think about it. How in the world could a cavalryman take um, get out his rifle and expect to fire a hundred yards away at uh, at the enemy from a distance and still be able to manage to be on his horse? Think about it, folks. With a pistol. You only need to use one hand. Sure, you got to make sure to cock it right and know where exactly you're going to be firing. But with a pistol, you you only need to hold it with one hand. With your rifle, you got to have both hands. You got to have one hand to take the rod out and then uh, ramrod it back in. Make sure that you're make sure that you're also putting the powder in if it means doing so in another. Um, with your, using your other hand, but basically with a rifle and a musket, you got to use both hands for various tasks. With a rifle, I mean with a pistol, you really you really only need to use one hand for firing it. So basically, you know, for a cavalryman, uh, the pistol is uh, the way to go if you um, if you're not able to use a sword. So uh, these dragoons um, that are commanded by Banastray Tarleton are at a huge advantage. Now, did Colonel Tarleton's men, or I should say Dragoon forces, face any obstacles as they departed from the Hanover um, Courthouse on June the 3rd of 1781? No, they didn't have any obstacles. After successfully having made it across uh, Ground Squirrel Bridge over the South Anna River, Tarleton and his, and his 180 soldiers turned west by making their way into Louisa County on the road, which also was home to the Louisa Courthouse. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar where Louisa County is, it's um, not too terribly far from where I live. As a matter of fact, you can go, there are various ways you can go to get to Louisa. You, you can go Interstate 64 
And on Interstate 64, there's a exit 136. And the only reason I know that is because there's a, a winery there that my wife and I have been to that we really like. It's called 53rd Winery. And as a matter of fact, um, we uh, go on the um, road that is uh, named in honor of Mr. Jack Jewett. As a matter of fact, there are various uh, mile markers on uh, Route 522 that tell you about the events that led up to Jack Jewett's acts of uh, heroism on uh, June the 4th, 1781. I'm not trying to give anything away, but I'm just trying to give some of you uh, a good understanding of where Louisa County is. It's not far from Charlottesville. You have to go through Louisa first before getting to Charlottesville, but Louisa does border Hanover uh, County. It also is close to Spotsylvania County, which is just north of Hanover. Louisa uh, borders uh, Fluvanna. It's right near Goochland. And not too terribly far from uh, Orange County either, too, um, which, matter of fact, uh, Orange County uh, is home to James Madison's uh, Montpelier uh, estate, which is about 30 miles from uh, Monticello. So, um, you know, Tarleton and his men are on a, a roll here, folks. You know, they didn't have any issues uh, crossing um, the Ground Squirrel Bridge over the South Anna River. I mean, they, they're on their way west. I don't think, I, I honestly don't know of anything that could stop uh, Tarleton and his forces, but if there was anything that could stop them or delay them, what do you think it would be? Do you think it's possible that if a, if a delay took place that it would have to do with weather? And when we think of June in Virginia, can it get hot? Yes. Can it get hot anywhere in Virginia in the month of June? Yes, if the temperatures are just right. So the weather, folks, did play a factor on June the 3rd of 1781, considering that, yes, it's June, it's summer, and it's hot. And it's not just hot, it's oppressively hot. So Banastre Tarleton and his men are going to have to they're gonna, they've got no other choice but to rest. And their horses need rest, too. I mean, a horse can only go but so far. And, you know, think about it. Tarleton's troops don't have any Gatorade. They don't have any Powerade or, um, or any of those, um, what do you call it, um, workout beverages like Red Bull. <laughs> they don't have anything like that. The closest thing they might have is... Um, you know, maybe water to drink. Of course, I don't know how safe even the water would be uh, uh, to drink even for that day and time. But they probably would have um, been drinking um, gin. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but hey, you know, they've got to have something um, that's going to probably, probably be better for their system that's safer to drink. And so many of them would have been uh, drinking uh, gin um, or or something basically that's... Um, that's going to help them out. Now, um, I know I mentioned something a while back about the uh, tavern. There was a tavern in uh, not far from Louisa County Courthouse called the Cuckoo Tavern. And of course, when we think of cuckoo or someone acting cuckoo, we think of <laughs> that person being naughty. Well, there's a reason why the tavern was referred to as the Cuckoo Tavern, and there is a place in Virginia called Cuckoo, Virginia, which just so happens to be in Louisa County on 522. 
Well, the Cuckoo Tavern happened to be located on the same road that Tarleton's forces had already embarked upon, but uh, Tarleton went past the tavern, including his troops, nearly 30 minutes earlier before resting for the night not far from the Louisa County Courthouse. Who, um, this is our next question here is going to probably um, give us even more uh, hope as to uh, wondering, you know, who's going to uh, be able to stop Tarleton on the American side. All right, here we go, folks, with Jack Jewett. Was Jack Jewett the one whom spotted Banastray Tarleton's men go past the Cuckoo Tavern around 10.30 p.m. on June the 3rd? Yes. And Jack Jewett, he's no stranger. He's no stranger to where he's from. He's no stranger to um, to the um, what do you call it? What we might think of today's time as the back roads. He's no stranger to the landscape around him. Jack Jewett knew exactly what the British forces were up to, including their traveling directions. Jewett knew what the enemy, being the British were up to. He knows that the British aren't venturing west for leisure. Jack Jewett already knows that Thomas Jefferson, Governor Jefferson, and members of the General Assembly have evacuated Richmond and gone west to Charlottesville to convene. In other words, this is a temporary makeshift capital in a time of crisis. Jack Jewett knew that what the enemy were up to, and that the British had this plan in mind. He knew that they were going to Monticello with the mission of capturing Governor Thomas Jefferson, including many, if not all, of Virginia's General Assembly members. Basically, the British don't want to beat the Americans in Virginia. They want to conquer Virginia, and that means conquering Virginia's government by conquering the largest of the 13 states, once Virginia falls not only into British hands and submits to the crown, then the southern colonies, being that of North and South Carolina and Georgia, will also resubmit. And then over time, the other nine colonies, in the eyes of the crown and parliament and British military officials, will all fall one by one dominoes out of line. All 13 colonies, would, in the eyes of the crown, would one day, by, with, the, with conquering Virginia, it would lead to all the other colonies uh, succumbing as well and falling back into um, Britain's uh, possession, being subjects of the crown. That's the last thing that's on Jack Jewett's mind, but he knows that what the, what, what's at stake and why the British are going west. And not only to just uh, surprise um, the governor and uh, members of the General Assembly, but to pretty much capture the entire government of Virginia. So Jack Jewett knew personally that he himself was the only individual whom could save Governor Jefferson and members of the General Assembly. He acted quickly by saddling up his horse named Sally. Yeah, he had a horse named Sally, folks. And on the night of June 3rd, 1781, Jack Jewett and his horse Sally embarked on a lengthy trip west to Charlottesville. How many miles do you think this was, folks? 
I'll give you a number. It's between 30 and 50. The answer is 40. They are going to embark on a 40-mile trip west to Charlottesville, warning the Virginia government of the imminent dangers that lied ahead. The British were coming. And Jack Jewett knew that the chances of failure were um, imminent. In other words, he was, he was very afraid that there was a likelihood that this mission would not prevail, not knowing if he would arrive in enough time to save everyone whose lives were at stake, from Governor Jefferson's life to um, members of the Virginia General Assembly, regardless of where they um, hailed from in Virginia and where uh, they were um, representing, um, where they represented their constituents. The bottom line is no matter how far out west you are in Virginia, if you are west of Charlottesville, and we have to remember, folks, we have delegates representing uh, the Virginia General Assembly as far away as present-day Kentucky and Tennessee, and even um, Ohio, probably, for that fact, too, and even as far west as we know as present-day West Virginia. That This is how big Virginia is, folks, in terms of not just the size, but uh, the how many uh, delegates there are who are representing the greater uh, commonwealth. So the uh, a little interesting, um, inf other interesting information about the Cuckoo Tavern and why it's got that name. I, maybe I should have mentioned this earlier, but um, the Cuckoo Tavern prior to 1781 had operated under different names like Winston's Ordinary to Sackville King's Ordinary, but the tavern became known as Cuckoo Tavern because the facility, or the place of lodging rather, had a cuckoo clock, which went about becoming a unique tourist attraction for its time. Yeah, think about it. Very few people had a cuckoo clock, and if you owned a grandfather clock back then or something that resembled a grandfather clock, you were, um, you were obviously well off. Anybody who could afford a clock, an actual clock, was well off. Now, in colonial Williamsburg times, um, and the only reason I know this is because when my wife and I have gone to visit, at the start of each hour, a cannon shot goes off. Of course, they don't fire an actual cannonball, but the shot goes off because um, this way it lets people know how much more time there is in a, in a day before uh, daylight changes to... Um, nighttime. In other words, you know, people were working, you know, up until maybe about like five or six o'clock or really until the, uh, the sun went down. So every hour that the cannon was fired off, that just gave people in the community a sense of knowing how much more time they had to work with before calling it a day's end. Did Jack Jewett have any advantages road-wise that Colonel Banastray Tarleton didn't have? The answer is yes. Jack Jewett knew the back trails, or what we would refer to as back roads, which were seldomly used. These roads, however, were only um, known by the locals living within the area. So Jack Jewett's ride, in this case, is going to serve him um, some advantages. Tarleton doesn't know about these uh, back trails. So we do have to believe that Jack Jewett might have a chance of getting to Charlottesville 
faster than Tarleton based upon the fact that Jewett is using back trails that are seldomly used. And to us, that would seem like a lot that would take longer. But remember, folks, Jewett needs, I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot of time to work with, but he's also got to take a, a trail or a, or a course where he's not going to be likely to get caught. Because if he's out there on an open trail, yeah, he runs the risk of being caught by the enemy. And if he gets caught, this whole mission fails. And then the British will more than likely have an easier path to their ultimate destination, Charlottesville, getting the governor and all the members of the General Assembly. Was Jack Jewett's ride a smooth one? Well, according to uh, Judy Bander's book that we're discussing, his ride um, saw him encounter low branches, tall bushes, to hanging vines, which resulted in permanent facial scars. It might be fair to say that even Jewett himself knew that he was going to encounter some of this stuff, but you know what? You've got to make sacrifices. If there is a scar, it, it might be worth having that scar because... If you don't have that scar, then how can how are you going to make a sacrifice? In other words, you're going to have to endure some things along this trail. This trail isn't supposed to be a piece of cake. This is a matter of survival of the fittest, even in my in my best estimates, 40 miles, and it's just a matter of time before you'll know whether or not you've made it and if you've beaten the enemy to your destination. So June 4th, 1791, Banistrade Tarleton's forces seized... 12 Patriot supply wagons, which led to burning the wagons, including all the provisions. Also that day, uh, Banistray Tarleton's troops intercepted a message for, a particular, uh, for one particular General Assembly member, and for the troops, it led them to the estates owned by the Walker family, where some legislators got taken as prisoners. Okay. So some of the uh, legislators, folks, have been caught by surprise because of uh, Tarleton's troops having intercepted a message or a dispatch. So, yes, can you imagine being a legislator and all of a sudden you've been taken prisoner without any probable cause? You know, why are you arresting me? You haven't, what am I being formally charged for? You can't just arrest me because... I'm of the of the opposing party, and I haven't committed a crime. Sure, in your eyes, you see me as a traitor, but have I done anything wrong to you? No. So, basically, we don't have anything called uh, Miranda rights at this time, for those of you in the United States who are listening right now. Remember that. No such thing as Miranda rights. Those won't come until the 1960s. However, um... Some prisoners got treated better than others. I often wonder if those prisoners who were treated better than others, maybe it was because they, were, um, they weren't hostile. Maybe it could have been because of, they, of their status. Who knows? Uh, sometimes some prisoners just got simply treated better than others. Sheer luck, maybe. So, I guess the bigger question we have to ask ourselves is this. What time did Jack Jewett finally get up to the mountain and, ar and arrive at Monticello on June 4th? Did he arrive at 7 a.m.? Did he arrive at 8 a.m.? Or did he arrive at 4.30 in the morning? 
The answer is choice C, folks. He arrived at 4.30 in the morning. Think about it, folks. He got off to a start before midnight on June 3rd. We have to remember, folks, 40 miles. You know, this isn't, you know, Jack Jewett doesn't have a GPS. He doesn't have OnStar. <laughs> he doesn't have a Garmin, you know, uh, one of those devices that we can hook up to our cars that, you know, where a person will automatically tell us where to turn direction left and right. So, you know, Jack Jewett knows these back roads, but, you know, 40 miles and probably, what, close to six hours? We have to think about this, folks. That's about six miles of distance per hour at best, or just over six. So, yes, Jack Jewett arrived at 4.30 a.m., and where's Governor Thomas Jefferson? He's outside with the gardener uh, discussing, um, what do you call it, what we think of as uh, front yard um, building, front yard projects, landscape, perhaps. Well, Jack Jewett arrived, and I think it's fair to say that Thomas Jefferson would have been uh, surprised at at um, Mr. Jewett's arrival, because yes, Jefferson knows that um, that they've had to uh, obviously knows the reasons behind why the uh, government in Virginia decided to relocate. But I, but Jefferson's under this assumption, obviously, that hey, I'm in you know Charlottesville, I'm in safe territory. The British would never come this way. There's nothing really here for them. Well. No matter how west you go, in terms of how well, how safe you feel, there is always a likelihood that the enemy will find you one way or another. Even if it means going out into a wilderness, even in a wilderness like Monticello, probably I mean like Charlottesville at that time, was not um, immune from outside um, invaders like uh, Tarleton's um, dragoons. So Jack Jewett warns Thomas Jefferson of what of what is about to happen. Basically, Jewett is warning him of a pending British advancement. In other words, the British aren't far. It's just a matter of time before they will make their way onto your uh, ground, onto the grounds of your estate. Jefferson was not in a state of panic. However, he did make the necessary arrangements to get his wife and his two uh, daughters, whom, survived, whom had already survived infancy, out of harm's way into a secure location. Uh, Jefferson uh, and his wife had a total of six children, but only um, two uh, made it out of uh, infancy and lived, um, oh, I would say, well, his oldest being Martha, who was born in 1772. She lived to be the oldest of all of his children. She would lived to be about 63 or 64, which was unheard of um, for that day and time. But um, Jefferson uh, did not have a... He lost his only son in infancy. Uh, his wife was um, have, was constantly undergoing uh, complications from uh, childbirth. So this at this time, his wife is uh, recovering after the loss of another child. So... Jefferson, though, has made arrangements to get his wife and two daughters out of harm's way into a secure location. So at least he is taking some form of proactive measure. However, Jack Jewett goes into the greater uh, Charlottesville area on the morning of June 4th, warning the legislators, as well as the greater public, that the British were, in fact, not far from advancing onto Charlottesville. 
And most of the legislators, I would say most, the majority of them were stunned by Jewett's warnings right away. I mean, many of them just couldn't believe that, you've got to be kidding me. Here we are, we've evacuated Richmond, we have gone as west as we can probably go, and now all of a sudden the British want to come this way? Yes, they do. So Jack Jewett is not going to give up. He's going to basically... (laughs) do what anyone would do in a time of crisis, and that is pretty much tell people until he or she is blue in the face. In other words, Jack Jewett has now got to think to himself, what else can I do to tell the greater public of Charlottesville just how serious um, the dangers are? I don't care if I have to stay here until I'm blue in the face, but I'm going to do whatever it takes. So Jack Jewett... um, Basically, he's not leaving. His persistence behind uh, the greater matter at stake finally led many to realize just how serious the situation had become. So, Jack Jewett, obviously, for those of us who know about Jack Jewett, I think it might be fair to say that many of us were probably told in the past that, oh, he, he only had to give one warning and everybody got the message right away. No, that, that's, that's not how it worked. What action did the General did General Assembly members take not long after Jack Jewett had issued warnings of British advancement? The Assembly agreed to relocate the capital from Charlottesville and convene further west in Stanton. So now we've got a new, uh, t- uh, a new temporary makeshift location for uh, Virginia's capital being Stanton. Gosh, I'm, I'm almost beginning to wonder how far will the Virginia... Um, government need to go in terms of relocating? Are they going to have to go as far as present-day West Virginia or maybe Ohio just to be out of harm's way? Who knows? How many hours did Governor Jefferson spend packing important valuables? And what I mean by important valuables, folks, I'm not talking about jewelry. I'm not talking about all the books from his library, although all that would be important to him, but I think it's fair to say as governor, he's got other more important valuables like personal papers. Yeah, think about it. personal papers, um, sensitive um, documents, you know, like state-related uh, papers. He's got to think about where can I put these so that they don't fall into the enemy hands. So it does take Thomas Jefferson about two hours, two hours to go through all of the valuables like you know, the personal papers to state-related documents. Of course, I know some people would say, well, all that could be replaced. Yes, but at the same time, if the enemy got their hands on it, who knows what other um, course of action the enemy could take that would even further endanger the well-being of the Commonwealth. A second warning was issued directly to Governor Jefferson just a few hours after the first. And did Jack Jewett give... Thomas Jefferson a second warning. In other words, the next, a second warning after the first one. No. Uh, it turns out that the second warning came from a Virginia militiaman named uh, Christopher Hudson, whom lived four miles east of Monticello. He was a lieutenant in the militia. But he didn't know of the earlier warning that Jack Jewett had um, administered. So Hudson knew that Jewett was in Charlottesville warning the greater community, but he decided to turn around on his horse and go straight to Monticello, where he saw, and by the time he got there, he saw Governor Jefferson in a calm state, 
but yet at the same time, Jefferson had no type of formal protection. So for uh, Lieutenant um, Christopher Hudson, when he saw, I mean, I can't imagine being Lieutenant Christopher Hudson, seeing Thomas Jefferson. Yes, he's in a calm state, which is a good thing, but yet he has no formal protection. Anybody could take a shot at the governor, and nobody would be there in enough time to save him. So the bottom line is, somebody else who's emerged out of the ashes, or not so much out of the ashes, but has emerged out of nowhere, whom is making an ultimate sacrifice on his end to make sure that uh, that the state's um, number one man in terms of uh, leadership, being the governor, will be spared. Or not just spared, but will get out before it's too late. So after Jefferson made arrangements for a horse that he would ride on once leaving Monticello, he did something uh, remarkable. He walked somewhere halfway. This is not a leisure walk, folks. He walked somewhere halfway along the road between his estate and Carter's Mountain. Of course, when I think of Carter's Mountain, I think of apple picking in the fall. They're apple cider donuts. For those of you who've never been to Carter's Mountain, it's, it's a nice treat. It's very well worth doing. But, of course, this was no leisure event. Jefferson wanted to go see for himself what truly was at stake. So he place, he sets up a tripod, which is a three-legged stand, where he will um, have his telescope put into place where he can go about scanning all of Greater Charlottesville for anything that would uh, come across as being unusual. He didn't spot anything right away that was unusual. So he decides that, okay, I'm going to go back inside and do whatever else I need to do last-minute preparation before I leave. However, while walking back, he realized that something had fallen off from his side. What do you think fell off from his side? Was it a pistol or a sword? It was a sword. So he went back to retrieve his sword, but he decided to be on the safe side. He decided to set up his tripod again and get his telescope in place so that he could look um, look out on the horizon one more time of Greater Charlottesville and see for himself if anything was of uh, suspicious activity. And what do you know? He saw a Brit he saw British dragoon forces taking charge of Charlottesville. Can you believe that? Okay, we might be onto something, folks. So, w was it a good thing on one hand that Jefferson that Jefferson's sword came fell off? Yes, because if he hadn't, where do you think he would have gone? He would have gone back inside. Do you think danger might have loomed? Possibly. Let's find out here, folks. We're going to find out here something here shortly. So Jefferson did get on horseback and got out of harm's way shortly after his second viewing and left Monticello safely. However, five minutes after Jefferson departed for good, the British under Colonel Banastray Tarleton's forces arrived. Had Thomas Jefferson gone back inside... Okay, if his sword had not fallen off and he had and Jefferson had gone back inside, the British would have seized him. Banastray Tarleton and his 180 loyalist soldiers would have 
been able to have seized Jefferson on the spot, no questions asked, he would have been the prized target. I can only imagine what could have been, what could have happened had it not been for a fallen sword. I can, I can only imagine if, what could have been if Jefferson had not looked out on the horizon a second time with his telescope, what might have transpired. Jefferson was in the right place at the right time to realize, hey, I need to look at things again. I need to assess things one more time just to make sure. Maybe God was on his side. Well, I think we all would want God to be on our side in, a, um, in, a, in times of uncertainty, but this was a time of uncertainty where nothing could have been taken lightly. Did any of Jefferson's enslaved servants come upon face-to-face with Colonel Tarleton's troops? Yes. An enslaved man named Martin Hemings came in direct contact with one of Tarleton's troops, whom cocked his gun and placed it on Hemings's head. Can you imagine being this man and having a um, having a British soldier cock his gun and then place it on the top on your head? He de- this the soldier demanded to know where Mr. Jefferson was. Well, Hemings didn't budge. He basically he didn't give in, but he said the following to the soldier. I don't know how anybody could say this knowing that you've got a gun pointed just knowing that uh, that the that the person in front of you has a gun, is putting placing their gun at your head the uh, mr hemmings said the following in quotes fire away then hemmings's life was spared despite the fact that tarleton and his troops stayed at monticello for 18 hours 18 hours what do you think they could have been doing in 18 hours time well, they could have uh, been uh, staying there with the hopes that Jefferson would have returned. And had he returned, yeah, they would have gotten him. There would have been another chance to have gotten him. But Jefferson didn't come back, which was probably a good thing, too, given the uh, circumstances of the crisis at stake. However, um, historians do know that uh, the British troops, uh, given that they stayed at Monticello for 18 hours, they... Um, consumed um, some of Jefferson's finest wines. And they also um, gave a toast, or multiple toasts, um, honoring um, King George III as it was his um, as it was his 63rd birthday, I believe it was. So around the time of this uh, invasion, it was King George III's birthday, and uh, Tarleton's uh, troops are, are giving, um, are basically... Um, the king is overseas, but the uh, but the troops are. You might as well it's, might as well think that they're serenading him. In other words, um, pledging their allegiance to him, and um, with the hopes that if the number one target does come back, that they will be able to fulfill a um, a wish of the king. Well, why didn't Colonel Banastre Tarleton and his British dragoon troop force destroy Jefferson's Monticello estate? I want us to pay really careful attention here, folks. This will say it all, but um, but there are reasons why the British did not destroy um, Jefferson's Monticello estate. We will need to understand some this part here first. We've got to go back to October 17th of 1777, about four years earlier. What's significant about October 17th of 1777? 
British General John Burgoyne, with his British and Hessian troop command of 6,000 strong, were defeated at Saratoga, New York. Saratoga is north of Albany. They were defeated by American General Horatio Gates. Horatio Gates's forces. So Gates's uh, forces win, and it's great for the Americans because now um, Benjamin Franklin, given that he's in France, ambassador to France, he uh, has found a way now to be able to convince the French to come along and be allies with the Americans in the Revolutionary War. So it was the Battle at Saratoga that obviously persuaded, uh, that enabled Franklin to um, get the French uh, to come along in uh, being our allies. General Burgoyne's surrender also meant that um, his surviving troops would also be uh, become prisoners of war. 4,000 of his troops got sent uh, just on the outskirts of Boston around, uh, I believe it was around uh, Cambridge, uh, where Harvard is. And then another 1,100 troops got sent um, into Canada. So how does Virginia have anything to do with this? All right, well, I'm glad you asked. Come November 1778, Congress requested relocation of the prisoners in Massachusetts to a more secure place due to uh, such things as provision shortages as well as um, security reasons. With, and, and the prisoners were um, housed on the outskirts of Boston, but um, the situation had become so bad that um, so many on the outskirts of, so many people living on the outskirts of Boston and most notably in Boston were very concerned about their safety and feared that if the prisoners escaped that there would be riots um, in and around Boston and that there would be more, um, a greater likelihood of uh, multiple deaths ensuing as a result of a prison breakout. So Thomas Jefferson and members of the Virginia delegation and Congress go about um, proposing a plan that would uh, relocate the prisoners from Massachusetts and bring them southward to Virginia. So Patrick Henry is governor. You know, in 1778, he's governor. Jefferson even proposes this to Patrick Henry, and Patrick Henry's on board with it. He basically just says, okay, I will give you approval for this, but you all are going to have to find a way to uh, make this work. Well, Jefferson and members of the Virginia delegation in Congress do just that. Um, a prison gets built outside of uh, Charlottesville known as the Albemarle Barracks Prison. Jefferson felt that the money towards this project would benefit uh, the Charlottesville economy. How can a prison benefit um, a town's economy? Well, for Jefferson, he believes that the prisoners coming southward do deserve to be treated humanely. But he also believes that uh, perhaps when the war ends, that many of these soldiers, many of these prisoners who do get relocated to Charlottesville will be able to uh, transition into the greater community and, um, and perhaps, um, especially with these uh, soldiers, once they get uh, released, that they will, not, they will no longer pose as a threat and will be able to um, adapt to the new uh, surroundings or settings to where... Um, to where they will uh, be able to um, have a second chance. 
So how do I say it? The, the, the transition was not easy right away. I'll tell you that much. January of 1779 saw 3,750 Hessian and British troops arrive into Charlottesville in dire conditions. Many of these men, um, many of the men didn't even make it south. A, a lot of them, a fair number of them died on the way down. And I can imagine that um, not just the weather, but uh, disease, uh, lack of food, a whole host of uh, factors. So for Jefferson, um, this the barracks were built northwest of Monticello and located far enough from all fighting hostilities, as well as from as well as preventing any British attempts in rescuing prisoners. So the prisons over time, though, um, would be um, how do I say it? Over time, the prisons would um, would actually be um, decent. And the prisoners took part in helping build the barracks. And these and the prison itself, over time, had its own store, a coffee house. And of course, when I talk about coffee house, it's you know a place where, um, when I think of coffee house, I think of uh, Charlton's Coffee House in Williamsburg, where uh, men uh, of high-end status uh, would come and... Um, socialize and talk about, you know, politics or anything that uh, you might think of as uh, manly um, that men would enjoy talking about and having a having a cup of uh, hot chocolate or um, tea or coffee, um, any kind of beverage that would uh, best suit a man. So, yes, there was a coffee house at this prison. There was even a church and a tavern. So <laughs> I'm sure many of you, many of us are beginning to wonder, where are the taxpayer dollars going, like we say today? Well, there were escapes, folks, but they weren't on a mass scale. I mean, soldier, I mean, prisoners did escape. Um, there, there wasn't a whole lot of protection. Um, what do you call it? There wasn't a whole lot of protection, perhaps, uh, planned out. But the uh, prisoners really were not a threat to the greater community. As a matter of fact, the greater community of Charlottesville was never in any uh, true harm's way, and many well-to-do residents often entertained uh, the enemy officers, that is, uh, officers of high uh, British and Hessian rank. And believe it or not, even uh, Thomas Jefferson, before he became governor, entertained uh, some of the uh, high-ranking um, officers, uh, most notably a Hessian officer by the name of Baron von Geismar, it turns out that Jefferson had a lot in common with some of these um, high-ranking enemy officers. Now, what in the world could Jefferson himself have had in common with the officers? They, ha they all had a love for music. Jefferson was a very um, accomplished violinist, and it turns out that even um, some of the officers were very um, uh, skilled at playing the violin. So, you know... Well-to-do residents and even um, high-end government officials, believe it or not, um, were able to um, find ways to be at peace during this time with the officers and even with those below. So how did the prison barracks get constructed, though? I, I found this very interesting. Of course, it wasn't your typical prison. In other words, not all the prisoners were housed in the same uh, buildings. They all weren't just placed under one roof. The prison barracks got placed into four rows of 12 houses. 
All right, so 12 houses per each row, folks. That's 48 houses total. And each house was able to hold up to 18 men. So if there were a total of 18 men in each house, I did the math, 48 times um, 18, uh, that comes out to 864 prisoners total at max. We have to remember that the uh, high high-ranking officers were not in the same uh, prison barracks as um, the lower, um, or what we might call, refer to as the common soldiers. Uh, many of the uh, high-ranking officers were able to have their own um, lodging uh, without needing to be confined to the uh, barracks. Now, prior to Britain's uh, Benedict Arnold's coming into Virginia in late 1780, what measure had Governor Jefferson enacted saving other regions within Virginia. What do you think he could have done? This was a very, very smart move on his part. Jefferson relocated all the prisoners stationed at the barracks by sending them north into Maryland, thus preventing Colonel Banastre Tarleton and his dragoon forces from acquiring more troops, which would have meant releasing them back into their camp with a greater likelihood of capturing Thomas Jefferson. Smart move on Jefferson's part. Although historians do know that there were about 20 um, Hessian prisoners whom eventually did rejoin, um, rejoin uh, the British. But think about it. Think about how many other um, soldiers Jefferson was able to get out of harm's, not, well, to us, harm's way, but Think of how many soldiers did not make it back. And by not making it back into, um, into uh, British lines, Jefferson was able to probably save um, not just mem many members of the General Assembly, but he probably uh, improved his chances to a degree of not being caught. But, of course, there again, we do have to thank um, Jack Jewett and Lieutenant uh, Christopher... Um, Hudson, who played their part as well. So, um, Governor Jefferson and other high-end members of the Virginia state government had treated all British Hessian and, and all British and Hessian prisoners, including high-end ranking officers from the Saratoga campaign of 1777, with proper dignity and respect. Therefore, Colonel Banastre Tarleton and his dragoon troop force of 180 loyalist soldiers decided to spare Governor Jefferson's Monticello estate from any damage due to the humane treatment of prisoners at the Albemarle Barracks outside of Charlottesville. So there's that story right there, folks. That's one of the reasons why Monticello survived even in that time of crisis. Had Jefferson and other members of the Virginia state government if they had um, not seen to it that the British and Hessian prisoners were treated humanely, then I could probably see where Banastre Tarleton and his uh, dragoon forces or his dragoon troop force uh, regiment would have done the unimaginable, and that, that was to get revenge and uh, destroy an estate that uh, Thomas Jefferson would uh, over time be tearing down and rebuilding um, based upon all the new uh, tastes of uh, architecture um, for its time. So it does pay to be nice to the enemy, even when you feel that you don't want to. Of course, we should keep in mind that not all American soldiers were so fortunate, because many of them died 
on prison ships in New York and, and probably many in Charleston, South Carolina. But for a brief moment in time, even in the midst of a crisis, uh, some good did come out of it. And thank heavens that um, Governor Jefferson and members of the Virginia state government uh, were able to um, come up with a plan that uh, did save thousands of lives and did save perhaps Virginia from um, from further, um, what do you call it, from further destruction at the time. But uh, Jefferson, um, how do I say it? Uh, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson basically didn't burn a bridge. Had he burned the bridge, then yes, uh, Monticello would have been burned. Well, um, I hope all of you have come away learning something that you didn't know before. And, um, and whenever you all are in Charlottesville, there is a road called Barracks Road. When you hear of Barracks Road, think of um, the prison barracks um, and, the, and the soldiers that were um, housed there. But also thank uh, Thomas Jefferson and the government of Virginia for being able to uh, treat these uh, prisoners humanely because many of them, after war's end, did um, settle in Virginia. Many of them settled around the Blue Ridge Mountain area, and others went further west uh, into southwest Virginia or into what we now know as Tennessee and Kentucky. So they were able to make a life and not uh, have to worry about returning um, back to England. Well, thank you for your time, as always, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, learn uh, about where Jefferson and his family eventually um, made their retreat to after leaving Monticello. We will also uh, learn about um, some uh, prominent Virginians who made it um, safely out of harm's way, and we will learn about a few um, who were captured by Colonel Banastray Tarleton and his troops. Matter of fact, one man in particular whom was captured but wasn't a prisoner for long, but it turns out that um, that he will become a man of um, high-end fame for uh, various reasons. But if I tell you all any more, there may not be any need for a podcast next go-around. Thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again with all of you, uh, my faithful 101 listeners. Thank you for everything. If it weren't for you guys, I'm not sure where I would be. Take care for now and stay safe.